Hello and welcome to Network Collective. Today we are continuing our series on BGP with BGP Security. We have our normal cadre of guests back to discuss the protocol that runs the internet. So grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and check your BGP peers, but not your neighbors, and get ready for BGP Security. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank Cumulus Networks for being a sponsor of today's episode. Cumulus makes the world's most flexible network operating system and has also one of the coolest logos in all of technology, the Rocket Turtle. We'll talk more about some of the cool things Cumulus Networks is up to. But first, let's start with BGP security. Nick, what are some of the basics we need to know about BGP and security? I think one of the most straightforward things that almost everyone does when they set up BGP is they say, well, if I want to set up this session to appear, I want to have some kind of security in that session and we, we throw authentication in there. And this was a uh, MD5 authentication for TCP has been around for probably at least 15 years, maybe more. And applying that to BGP was a pretty logical extension for a lot of network vendors. And it's a really straightforward way to ensure that you are authenticating with your peer. Now it's not exactly the world's best hash. It's not a particularly great option. Uh, a lot of network vendors don't really support anything better. There are some exceptions, but that's one of those things that doesn't really cost a whole lot in general to turn on, and it's generally recommended for most sessions. So we we'll start off with so some there, Yeah, so there are some things. Um, MD5 uses a hash that's been shown theoretically to be breakable. Oh, uh, it's more than theory at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It is. You you can find duplicate hashes, right? Well, you the, can the, actually, it's not really breaking the hash, but you can actually find duplicates of the hash. Well, there's two problems, right? The 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 hash itself has collisions, and if, right. you, if you even cause a collision in a hash, then you can essentially, yep. you know, uh, bypass the the password uh, or not have to have the original password. The the other concern uh, with it is it's you know. Um, depending on the complexity of your password, generating what they call rainbow tables or, you know, essentially uh, brute forcing, but pre-brute forcing an MD5 hash is a lot easier than some of the other salted hashes that, that are a little more complex. And so it's, it's, a, simple, it's a simple encryption mechanism. It's not perfect, yes. but it does a decent job. So, so some people turn on MD5 just because it actually gives you better error correction rather than for the security. <clears throat> Wait a minute, or not. say that again? Some people turn on MD5 just for the better error correction and not just for the, not just for the security piece because so, it's actually a better. So because the, because the packet is encrypted, if it comes in and it's the, something got messed up in the hash, in line, will, that, the hash will blow yeah, it up and it will reject the packet. That's exactly right. I never so, thought about yeah, doing so that. I've seen people do that. Um, on the downside, the other downside of classic MD5, and by the way, this is true of all security mechanisms. It's something people don't think about. But as an experiment in the scaling team at, in uh, Cisco, we started throwing random password um, hashed packets at a BGP speaker, and we could make it fall over pretty fast. Oh, if you sent the wrong hashes. Yes. So the processing of trying to validate the hash could actually yes. be like a denial <laughs> oh, yes. of service. It's, do you think yes, it's any it's, better or do you think that's still true? Oh, I have no idea. But because that, that, that seems like a pretty weak mechanism of being able to take out somebody. <laughs> if you could just throw it at their BGP speakers and be done. It's still, probably, it's still probably true to some extent. You think about the general reason. Again, this isn't a, a little off topic, but things like control plane policing or whatever the other network vendors call it, same kind of idea. If I send you 10 gigs of, of BGP messages, all with different hashes, and you're forced to compute all of them, 
that would probably take even powerful routers to yeah. the new screen. Yeah, it's a compute exhaustion thing. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. it's um, a compute exhaustion thing. But, and but routers don't have as have as big of processors as other boxes. So. Yeah. And there's there's some ways to you know the one the one interesting mitigation for that is what we call GTSM uh, generic TTL security mechanism. Cisco calls it TTL security. That's how it's configured. But in, in either case, what you want to do with this is it's a lighter weight, simpler approach that says for eBGP peers only. I want to specify how many hops away that peer can be. So if I say that peer is one hop away, I'm going to say the incoming TTL that I receive from that peer for all the BGP control plane traffic has to be 256 minus the number you specify. So that effectively forces that peer who's going to use the maximum TTL when it sends traffic, which by default, eBGP uses the TTL of one, you can increase that to 255 and then take the difference from the number of hops in the network. So for example, if you're multiple hops away and you're trying to attack a router with BGP and you send it uh, 10 gigs of MD5 hash traffic, all that stuff will get discarded before MD5 gets run because it failed the TTL right. check. So this is a way that you can help prevent against that. And, and yet more history for you, Nick. The original name was not GTSM. It was BTSH. It was B BGP TTL security hack. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for it. I knew it would be there. It had to be something. This is, this is the internal name. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is, right? It's just, a, you know, how can, how can we enforce that? That makes sense. Yeah. But it was pretty funny. And when we went to the ITF, it was called GTSM. So, so Nick, on here, you have something about EA. EA is another option other than classic MD5, which is a lot more um, stringent or a lot better security. And I've actually seen people set up. Well, you might want to talk about that a little bit. And then there is this concept. Some people do set up BGP over, um, over IPsec tunnels. Yeah, that's right. Those are both good options. So EA stands for enhanced authentication. It's basically an extension to the idea uh, that we can have MD5, but we can also protect it with stronger hashes like the series of SHA hashes, et cetera. Um, to effectively achieve better authentication, hence the name. Uh, I know iOS XR, for example, in the Cisco space supports this with a few hashes past MD5. I'm not sure about all the other platforms, but it does exist, and it, um, I know Russ has, has worked with it a bit as well. And then as it relates to IPsec, this is an interesting conversation because what you can do with just a, a regular IPsec, let me, let me back up. If I have two BGP peers, we may say that, you know, MD5 doesn't really meet our needs. Maybe we actually want to provide encryption for the session and not just hashing. We can use IPsec with the ESP uh, transform. We can, or if we only need authentication, right. we can, uh, strong IPsec, maybe some kind of sweet B for those who work in the government space and you really want strong security for them. Yeah, you can do AH, you can do AH with, well, with a sweet B, yeah. Yeah, you can do AH with sweet B and a strong, you know, strong IP version two and then use an AH. Um, an AH transform to get the authentication, maybe without the encryption to reduce the load on the routers a little bit. Like if you're carrying the full table and you get lots of updates and you don't want to necessarily deal with the encryption side of it. And I know Russ, you'll probably talk about some of the dangers of having to do all that decryption on updates. And we'll talk a lot about that in the BGP yeah. stuff, but certainly AH is a good option for that. If you really care a lot about authenticating those BGP sessions more than what MB5 plus GTSM can do for you, then those, those options certainly exist. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was trying to think there was something else we used to do in this. Oh, the other thing that's kind of being thrown around that hasn't been done yet is BGP ever quit, which would, which would encrypt everything as well. Um, we've actually been, Alvaro and I have been having discussions about BGP ever quit, but, uh, and uh, Donald and I talking about implementing it in FRR, but it hasn't been implemented. It's just an idea that's being tossed. So you hit it, heard it here first, guys, just so you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
It's a net. And at the rate of net, the way our networks change, we'll see it, what, like 15 years from now? Yeah. Yeah, they're about. <laughs> but, but not in cumulus, not in cumulus. It'll come no, out like, no, cumulus will do it. It'll like come out pretty fast because it's software-based. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have to talk to the folks at Cisco and see if we can make it happen on their boxes. You know, but yeah. nonetheless. Understood. So what else, guys? Any other basics that we should be looking at? I mean, we talked about authentication. Yeah, I think I think another important topic just to cover briefly is the, the way we handle prefix filtering. And of course, the, the major answer here is it depends. It depends on where you are in the network. And like, for example, you didn't here say that, right? it's, it's how many balloons fit in a bag. How many balloons fit in a bag? That's, the, <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the, your uh, line, Russ. Academic <laughs> But in either case, you know, if you're if you're a carrier versus a customer, there's going to be different things. But some of the some of the most basic rules, at least that I've observed in real life, that have been generally effective is suppose you're an ISP and you have a BGP session to a customer, whether it's within the context of private WAN like MPLS layer three VPN, or whether it's just a regular internet BGP session and you provide them the full table and there's no MPLS, it doesn't really matter. In general, you may want you know if that customer is multi-homed, they may want to AS prepend uh, their own local AS to a route multiple times to attempt it. Uh, attempt to influence ingress traffic engineering, which we discussed in one of our shows, and that may or may not work. But again, customers should be able to do that. Uh, so from a filtering perspective, you might say, I want to allow only their AS to appear in the path, but any number of times. And you can construct kind of a complicated regular expression to match that. And that would be a pretty good ingress filter for a carrier to, to apply. Um, you know, from the internet, if you're a carrier or a customer, there's some pretty obvious things you want to block. There's the Bogon list, which you can get online, uh, RFC 1918 addressing, Class D&E addressing, uh, the test nets that are defined for IPv4 and IPv6, things that should never really appear on the internet anyway. You want to make sure you don't receive those. Uh, I would also generally say that if you're one, you know, within your AS, you don't want to receive your own routes in because that means someone's spoofing your routes or, you know, that's, I would call that, uh, I guess it'd be, it'd be false to call it BGP sec version one, but it's kind of like a really lightweight way to say, don't learn your own routes accidentally inbound for eBGP. That could cause some issues. I mean, that, that should be taken care of by default, but you can turn that filter off, right? So, I mean, by default, you shouldn't learn back in. It just drops them on the floor if it has your AS in it. Oh, no, no, no. I, I don't mean learning your own routes back in. I mean, learning your prefixes that someone else. Spoke. Oh, so yeah, take, take your, take your, whatever you're advertising out and don't allow right. them in. So it's not necessarily yeah. something you advertised. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that makes way more sense. I'm like, why would you need to block that? Like, I mean, like <laughs> I get it as a backup, but like. It's too much spanning tree for Jordan today. He's, yeah. yeah. I don't want to talk about spanning tree. Let's not talk <laughs> so, about so, it. So there, is a spanning tree, there is a spanning tree example here, Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have to? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the routing between the peers is also kind of important. We talk about a BGP peering versus transit. Um, if you have a peering agreement with someone, you generally send your routes, your customer's routes to that peer, and you accept your peer's routes and your peer's customer routes, but you generally don't want to provide transit for each other. So certainly no default route and probably not going to be a full table either. And those are important. Which is why it's called the default free zone. Right. Default free zone, right. So DFZ for sure. So that could be a big, at least from a business perspective, that could be a big problem if you're providing, you know, transit service to someone who didn't pay for that, um, effectively wasting bandwidth and not being paid for it and not knowing. So these BGB filters can, can really have a big business impact, in addition to a security one, of course. Right. And so some people also might set up something as complex as filtering things that they're learning from peers that are not transit, but... Uh, from their customers. So in other words, you, you learn something from your from a non-transit peer, you might automatically set up a filter towards your customers so they can't accidentally tr become a transit between you and a non-transit peer. 
something like that. So those are more complex, but there are people who actually set up that type of thing using communities by and large. <clears throat> all right, what's, what's next? Is that all the, uh, the basic topics? Are we ready to move on to more advanced? I would say one more, the, uh, the best common practices 38 or BCP 38, this is a document that's been around for, I don't know, Russ, 10 or 15 years. And yeah, it really tries to, it's a really quick, easy read. And I would recommend everyone give that a read, just Google it. Really what it tries, we'll, the it tries we'll to drop solve, a link in the show notes. Yeah. yeah the okay. problem it tries to solve is really, it's an, it's a spoofing problem. And it says, um, it was kind of a precursor for things like uh, unicast RPF and things like that. But, but really the way you want to look at this is, you know, given your specific environment, if you've got a multi-home customer or maybe a single home one or whatever, you want to look at that environment and say, what's the best security? And again, Russell, you know, Russell and I can, can talk through what, what's practical and whatnot. But in general, from a security perspective, what's the best security I can apply for that specific environment? So for example, if I have one provider edge and one customer edge, going back to the example I gave earlier, there's really not a lot of risk for that provider to put uh, strict mode unicast RPF on the interface facing the customer to ensure that the customer doesn't spoof any traffic. So when we talked about the prefix filtering, we talked about how to prevent uh, malicious route injection for, you know, advertising routes you don't own. Now we're talking about traffic stuff, effectively trying to ensure that we don't uh, do DOS attacks or spoofing attacks or anything like that, try to mitigate it. Uh, and maybe I should walk back the statement about DOS attacks. We're not necessarily able to stop the, the, the flow of traffic. We're not policing. We're not matching any of the traffic. We're just saying that, if the route didn't come from you, I don't want to accept traffic from those sources. Uh, the more manual approach would be that the source-based access list, which can also be pretty effective in some multi-home cases where maybe you don't, want to, you don't want to turn the wheel all the way to the side and go loose mode unicast RPF, which is generally ineffective, um, at least in terms of identifying what interface things came from. So a source-based access list could also be used. But in general, what the document tries to describe is if you have these, if you do this basic stuff at the very edge of the network, and Russ can explain more about the true kind of customer edge or the true edge of the provider network, um, if you put these basic things there, then spoofing generally becomes impossible or very difficult for attackers to do. Right, and spoofing, right. spoofing is a big thing, especially when you talk about like amplification attacks, right? Like, well, I, you, you, it used to be. Okay. Well, it still not is. As much, not as much as it, it was. Used, it was just a couple of years ago. We had a big DNS amplification attack that was happening where you send right, 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 you right. you send your target source address as you know a spoof source address. <clears throat> right, then, right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. If you're trying to do an amplification attack against a DNS server, right? You're well, using a fake source address that's not really there on the network to get the DNS server to respond back. So, so what's happening more recently in the DDoS world is people are just building burner networks and they don't care if they get burned because they're IoT. So well, yeah. that doesn't, so BCP 838 doesn't solve that problem. It no. does solve what you're talking about though, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, where I just, I just spoof my enemy source address right? and, and the server exactly. sends back, you know, 10 times the amount of data in response to my request to someone who never requested it to begin with. It would, yeah, it would stop those true. kinds of things. And so, you know, obviously not yeah. universally applied because if they were, <laughs> those things wouldn't work. But, so, but so let's, talk about why yeah. let's talk about why they're not universally applied because this is really interesting because yeah, I was good. on the phone the, the other day with the manners guys and, and the security ADs and we were talking about this. And so from a transit provider's perspective, you almost can't do BCP38 on your edge on transit links. Why is that? Uh, because it's strict mode unicast RPF is basically what they're calling for in BCP38. Right. And scaling I can't, it's, it's not just a scaling issue. I can't know which direction the traffic's going to come in. Traffic through a transit is asymmetric. 
quite often. Sure. So since yeah. it's asymmetric, I can't, I can't count on my routing table to tell me what I'm doing. From a performance perspective, if I'm at the edge and I have, you know, LinkedIn has, um, you know, 40 gig links, the upstreams, and we fill them. Well, doing unicast RPF at 40 gig, um, good luck. If you, right. <laughs> if you can find a chipset that'll do it, I'll be, you know, we'll, we'll all be much happier. Give you, you a call. Reality, <laughs> give you a call. Because I don't know anybody who does it. So, yeah, so I mean, everybody says they can do it, but the reality is performance-wise, most transit providers aren't going to do it because that's a problem. So it's got to be done at the very, very edge where the customer connects, whoever the customer is, sure. right? So that's that's except, a big issue. Except for if the customer is, you know, big, like LinkedIn. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so what you find yeah. is... Yeah, so what you find is, is most customers are attached to tier three ISPs. Right, the tier threes would be where this would make sense to. And they're not going to do it because they don't have the technical. Yeah. Right? Chops, yeah, yeah. I so, yeah. So, so it becomes this whole problem with actually getting it to be deployed is a very big problem. Okay. <laughs> so is that all we want to talk about BCP38? Anything yeah, else in that list? I think, I, think that, I think that sums it up pretty pretty nicely. I mean, like I said, it really, it's really calling for strict mode RPF, source-based access list where you can obviously apply it sensibly. And like most things, try to push that security as, as far to the edge as possible, close to where the attacks would originate at the edge, acknowledging that a lot of those ISPs may not have the know-how to do it. Right. Yeah. And Unicast RPF, by the way, I know we're talking about B2B security, but in general, it's something you should even deploy, I think, in your enterprise your enterprise network. I hate that word. But yeah. towards your hosts, towards your hosts and servers, right? Because I've actually seen it rescue a network. When Code Red hit, now that's a long time ago for anybody who remembers Code Red. When Code Red hit, it used for, for, uh, spoofed addresses to swamp the network. And this one network I was working on, they weren't running Unicast RPF, they were running Edge ERP. And then Edge ERP didn't have a default route. So they were pointing their default network at a, um, at like at a transit point in their network, but that transit point had Unicast RPF turned on. So it dunked all the code red traffic and it couldn't get out of the network. So it actually saved their network. Unicast RPF did. Um, so this this kind of thing I think is really good to do whenever you can do it. And and URPF is pretty safe in the enterprise network because we oh, don't yeah. see we don't see asymmetric traffic a lot, and we don't see right. we don't see the the type of bandwidth or throughput that you were talking about with you know yeah. forty gig links at full all the time. It's just something you want to pay attention to. Obviously, you know the the hardware capacity is going to scale. You know. <laughs> depending on, on what you're investing into it. Um, but it, the reality is, is that I think most enterprises is a pretty safe thing to deploy. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Just, just know when you start troubleshooting, if you do have asymmetric traffic paths, that's just probably what's that. killing you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that. Yeah. yeah. Don't forget so Nick, you have it turned have, on in one place. Yeah. I know we have words in security next, but maybe we should talk about remote triggered black holes because they're kind of related to Unicast RPF, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, that's, a, that's I mean, a good idea. We'll talk about RTBH real quick. I think that's a, that's a, this is a fun one. So effectively what you're doing is you're, in, you're injecting black holes into the network uh, kind of to do like what a similar story to the code red thing that Russ just talked about. The whole idea of RTBH is you have some device on the network that speaks BGP, typically IBGP. It might have a, a connection to some route reflectors. Maybe it's a router, maybe it's a server, it doesn't really matter. But you go on that device 
and uh, that device is configured to take in, you know, manually configured static routes based on a tag or something. So when you configure a static route, it gets pulled into BGP automatically. It gets blasted out to your whole network. Okay, that's, you know, why? What, what difference does that make? The reason is because all the nodes at the edge of your network, uh, let's just call them your ASBRs, when they learn that route, they're going to say, if I learn this route with this specific black hole community, I'm going to change the next hop to be some, you know, 192.0.2.1, some test net or whatever. They're gonna change that next stop administratively, and then on them they have a static route to null zero for that test net. So it effectively allows them to black hole any traffic towards that destination that enters them. So that could be useful if someone is doing a DDoS attack on one server, you go type in that server's host route in, into BGP on the trigger router, it gets immediately within seconds blast out to all the ASBRs in your network and any incoming traffic to that server is dropped at the edge. Now, that, of course, that server's offline. Now, no one can reach it, um, but you've effectively you know, pruned off that server under attack to save the rest of your network and to not have your bandwidth be consumed by a DDoS attack. So that was the and, and this, yeah, this is actually really useful, by the way, if you have a data center and you're running BGP or even um, distributed processing of any kind and you're running BGP, that you can actually um, shut off hosts that, that have been rooted off the network to a central location without changing an access list. Right, you don't have to jump on a console or something like that. You're just saying, right. eh, there's something wrong here, you're gone. Yeah, just shutting yeah. in, you're gone. You can tell you can tell Russ works a lot in web scalers because I don't know about, I don't know about I don't know about the enterprise, but there's not just extra servers we can turn off. <laughs> we don't we don't scale out you know five thousand of the exact same host and oh, if we lose one, no big deal. Yeah. But but so what are some unintended consequences of that? I mean, how do you protect yourself from that protection? Like how, how do you keep from turning off too many of the wrong thing and. Um, you know, it seems like that is orchestration to maybe dating <laughs> <laughs> failures. Uh, there's been a number of times I've heard of uh, remote trigger black holes that have been accidentally kicked off by an engineer or administrator who, you know, fat fingers something. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I think orchestration, we get back to the same thing about, you know, uh, control in configuration management and those types of things like, you, they, it has the same perils because if you're doing it by hand, the chances are there's it's wide open for mistakes. Um, it is really neat to think about black holes as well when you when you associate them with um, some of the other you know automated detection tools um, that are out there. Especially when we talk about like DDoS, and it's like okay, well like you know we uh, analyze yes. this traffic and say and and we can have that tool when it detects something uh, if it can definitively define it, send a command to to black hole something. And there's, there's some, there's some neat things there. I think it's probably a bit more advanced than what most people are doing, but it's yeah. uh, the, the concept yeah. is there that, that, you know, you can use your routing protocol to, to help protect your network. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. You were going to. Yep. I was going to say that's, you know, the, the situation I just described would be, you know, the case where you have distributed denial of service and everyone, you know, lots of devices on the internet are trying to attack a, a device in your network. It might even be a whole subnet, whatever a whole data center, you know, if you're a web scaler and you can afford to lose it, sure. It's black hole, whole thing. doesn't matter. Maybe. Yeah. Um, sure. But, but you can also couple, yeah, you can also couple this. <laughs> yeah. You can also couple it with unicast RPF. And this is where Russ was going with it is if you put unicast RPF on the ASBRs as well, 
And now you do, um, instead, of, instead of specifying the destination target, so for example, if you have attackers on the internet and a distributed denial of service attacking a single host, and you black hole that host, we discussed that. But what happens if instead of a distributed denial of service, you just have you know one or two bad actors on the internet, or maybe a subnet of them that are all kind of near each other, and you just want to black hole all those sources. So it's a source-based remotely triggered black hole. You can put that static router in that same router for the source you want a black hole. It gets blasted out to the ASBRs. Their next top points to null zero and URPF is enabled. So when that packet comes in with that source, the packet will be dropped by unicast RPF because you can't have a route to null zero, it doesn't qualify. So effectively you can use remotely triggered black holes to drop traffic to a destination in your network or traffic from a source on the internet that you don't trust, depending on the nature of the attack. Nick's router tricks are the best. I wasn't yeah, I wasn't I was going to have to listen to this again and again and never, again. I would, yeah. never, I would have never figured that out on my own. Um, <laughs> someone else came up with that. I thought it was And he's humble too. Yeah. No, but I mean, that's really slick, right? The combination of URPF and black hole, like you can, yes. you can block not just the destination, right. but the source. That's really, that's really clever. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't done it. Yeah, that's how, that's, hopefully yeah, that's how we use it. Correctly. No, that's right. And that's how we use it in our data center, actually. We do use this in our data center for sources, not for destinations. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, I mean, the thing about RTBH, it's it's a big hammer. You can completely cut off a server and kind of save the rest of your network, but now you have a dead server. Um, You know, compare that to what Jordan was talking about, where maybe you have a tool, um, a specific DDoS, a scrubbing center, as they're sometimes called, where you want to, you know, if you feel like you're under DDoS, you can redirect it over that scrubbing center and do some other actions. This is kind of where BGP flow spec comes in, which I thought was cool. Um, I, I view flow spec as kind of a cross between remotely triggered black holes and QoS uh, through BGP, so QPBV effectively. Uh, QoS policy propagation via BGP, I think is the official name, but either Thank way. Thank you, because yeah. I don't know that I've ever heard that acronym. <laughs> pretty, cool. pretty cool. Basically, really? basically what it comes yeah. to is that yeah. you, can, you can tell BGP based on a specific community or any kind of match criteria, like from this subnet or this AS or this community, I want to set the QoS on the traffic. So you can get really, you know, so all your edge routers, you can say any traffic from Jordan's house that comes in my network, give it scavenger traffic because it's not important. What? You can do <laughs> so you can do, you know, and not that it's that commonly. Priority. Dynamically. Priority queue. Priority queue. Come on, guys. <laughs> anyway, yeah. the idea of flow spec is to make that more granular, is to say I can, you know, just use a Cisco example. I can configure my policy map or whatever on some BGP speaker. I can pull it into BGP using, you know, the equivalent of a network statement, but that's not what it is. I can pull it into BGP. I can blast it out to the edge routers. And then those edge routers will do things like classification, marking, policing, redirection into a VRF, changing the next top, et cetera. So I can take a lot of that, or I could just drop it like I do with uh, rolling the triggered black holes. But typically you might want to police it uh, and the redirection into a VRF or doing something else with it. I can move it into a scrubbing center or something like that for, um, to go through the, the scrubbing process. Right. So there's a flow spec is basically the enhancement to provide uh, QoS controls uh, for the edge to be a kind of a next gen solution to remotely triggered black holes and QPB, QPPB. That's it. That's quite yeah. an acronym. All right, guys, I, I want to, I think this is a good spot. We're going to take a minute uh, and I'd like to talk about our sponsor. Cumulus Networks brings the flexibility, efficiency, and optimizations found in the world's largest web-scale data centers to your enterprise. But in addition to all this flexibility, tools like NetQ and HostPack give you greater visibility into your operations than you've ever seen before. In fact, it's going to leave you wondering why we haven't done networking like this all along. So today, Cumulus 
is offering you, our listeners, a completely free O'Reilly ebook on using BGP in your data center. While BGP is pervasively used to run the internet, many enterprises shy away from it because of its perceived complexity. Now, this book was written by Dinesh Dutt and helps peel back the layers of mystique around this protocol to show what is really something that's truly elegant and sophisticated and not nearly as difficult and complex as many make it out to be. This book covers topics like BGP theory of operations, enhancements to BGP made in open networking, BGP best practices, change management, and troubleshooting. So please take advantage of this great free offer. You can get your copy of BGP in the Data Center by browsing to cumulusnetworks.com slash BGP. That's all lowercase. Again, that's cumulusnetworks.com slash BGP. You'll also be able to find that link in the show notes to this episode on our website, as well as in the video description field on Vimeo. So we've talked a lot about the positives um, of applying security to BGP, but I mean, are there any negatives? I mean, there's almost always trade-offs. Is there something that we haven't really talked about from a, from a negative perspective? Yeah, I would say every time we deploy one of these security features, and again, I'm going to use Russ's exact words because why not, is we open up a new attack surface. Um, and what that really is saying is, you know, when we turn on MD5, we talked about earlier how now that I have MD5 on, somebody could flood me with 10 gigs of traffic with random hashes and I have to compute all those things. And then I close one door and a new door open. And when I get up to close that other door and I turn on GTSM to handle that problem, it's potentially that another door opened as well. For example, I'd probably have to give that one some more thought and I'll rust back me up. What's the security trade-off for GTSM? Oh, I'm sure there is one. I haven't thought of it off the top of my head, but, there, but I'm sure there is one. Stumped him, guys. Amazing. All I know is, there's, if you haven't found the trade-off. You haven't looked hard, hard enough. enough. Yeah, that's for us. We're right there with you. We haven't looked at all because we, just, we just thought of it right now. So I think that's right. <laughs> um, but but I, think, I think that ties in nicely with the next thing we were trying to talk about, Russ, which was the uh, or, you know, path validation, origin validation to start, and the whole kind of world of BGP SEC or BGP security. And the big, there's, I think the trade-offs there are much more obvious. Yeah, they are. So you have to start with, with like starting 15 years ago with the whole concept of origin security. And the big problem that we have today in hijacking is not just that people fat finger things, but they actually intentionally hijack routes. And the reason they hijack routes is primarily to send, to send spam. Just to be honest, that's what they do. They hijack a route for 10 seconds. They spent, send a million spam messages and then they shut down the route and it, you can't catch it fast enough to figure out what's going on uh, in the real table. Did you? <laughs> it's the prince, like, it's the, the really? prince that has a million dollars. That's who hijacks our routes. That's who's hijacking our routes. That's it. So that that's a huge use case. There are other use cases, but that's a huge use case. Um, by the way, another one is, is Bitcoin mining, right? If you can if you can hijack somebody else's mining pool their route to their mining pool, you can consume their mining resources. Um, so there, <laughs> there are other use cases for hygiene. Jordan's like, I never would have thought of any. No, no. no. So, so the, 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 the Bitcoin thing, I think is, you know, that's a little bit fresh. And so that's there, but the spam thing's really interesting to me because I'm trying to, you know, I'm just trying to think about, it seems like a lot of uh, hassle to get a, to get some spam messages out. But I guess if you can obfuscate enough through the chaos, 
you know, yeah. we've gotten good and enough at identifying. Really do click the links because that's a lot of effort to send that email that people okay. do. I've had a bad spanning tree day and now we're going to talk about how people like just click on any link that shows up in their inbox. <laughs> you Are you that? <laughs> but, but, but George, here's the problem. We want to know when you've ever had a good spanning tree day. Good question. I, I got nothing. <laughs> Got nothing. It was pretty cool when Roddy read her poem about it. Yeah. No, you're right. You know what? That's true. Roddy coming on the show and talking about spanning tree was pretty cool. So that was you know a what? good spanning tree day. That was a good spanning tree day. Okay, that's good. Okay, that that nice one, Yvonne. Yeah. Yeah. Provide some value. I'm here. <laughs> so, right. so, how can, so how can we figure out when somebody's hijacking a route? That's really the question we need to figure out, right? There's nothing that you can look at in the in the DFZ in the default free zone that says, "Oh, this route belongs to this AS." So this is what RPKI route, uh, RPKI um, route public key infrastructure, I guess it's called. Is that right, Nick? Is it infrastructure or is it? I think it's resource. Resource public key infrastructure. There you go. Right. Um, we, I don't know, in the early days, we confused them all up. But anyway, so yeah, that's where this comes in. What you're trying to do is you're trying to tie the route to an organization and the organization to the AS, the origin AS, they might be originating that route from. So an organization goes to an IRR and says, I want a, a block of addresses. And they say, okay, fine, here's your, here's your block of addresses, 192.168.100.0 or 2001 DB8, whatever. And when they hand that out, they hand out an X500 certificate tying that AS number for that organization to that route. And then that that X500 certificate, it's a signed X500 certificate using SHA-1 or SHA, I think it's SHA-256 or something. I don't remember because there's different ways of signing them. Um, this is carried throughout the internet using RSync. And anybody who grabs the RSync database, when they receive the route, they can compare the origin AS with the, with the, the, the address, the reachable destination, and say, yeah, that should belong to that origin AS, so therefore I'll accept this route or not, as the case might be. This is kind of an interesting idea. Now, there are some problems here when you talk about trade-offs. Number one, there's a lot of legacy data, a lot of legacy address space out there that nobody quote-unquote owns, but they own. It's not pushed through an RIR. So now, who authenticates this legacy database space? Now, this should not be true in IPv6, but it is true in IPv4. So that's one problem. I think we're also running into exchange now, right? Like with IPv4, someone yes. someone owned a space and now we're going to exchange it. I guess I guess you'd have to issue new certificates, right? Like you would. That's exactly right. So how long does it take to issue that certificate and get it rsynced? Well, yeah. And how I, fast do you want to? And well, how, and, and then you've got security of your issuing authority too, right? If there's a problem mm -hmm. with your issuing authority and that becomes compromised, well, then the whole internet's just screwed. That's exactly right. Well, each RIR is its own issuing authority in theory. But nonetheless, let's say you run a company that is that is reliant on your website. It doesn't have to be a web scale. It could be a hospital, right? But they rely on their website to do business, a bank or anybody. And let's say you go to Aaron and you get your address space. And then you get in a contract dispute with Aaron and Aaron pulls your certificates while you're in court. Yeah, I, it's, yeah I can see that too. <laughs> And then, so, and then also the idea that, you know, not everyone goes to their RIR to get address space. Not everyone is that large, but sometimes you get address space from your ISP with special exactly. agreements to the idea that, yes, this is also reusable from other places. Yeah. 
And now exactly all, all like of a sudden you have a certificate so tying it to a particular a, service a provider. CA and, and are we dealing with oh, this, this? This sounds like <laughs> hell. <Yeah. laughs> he lost me when he said certificates. Yeah, frankly. I quit. So. I quit right now. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the trade-offs that come with any PKI infrastructure exist here. Yep. The only difference though is that yep. PKI being an application that runs on a network that's decoupled, the network relies on the PKI now. That's right. Different, that's right. A different, a different level of scary to, to many. <laughs> yeah, you know. That's yeah. a really nice way of putting it. A different level of scary. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I will say this. I, mean, I know. I know some network vendors, um, and I'm sure most would. Is you know when, when you when you get a route, you really have a determination to say like, hey, is the route valid? Is it invalid? Or is it not determined? Or do I just not have information to make a decision? And at an individual router basis, you can have in a policy of your network what you want to do with it. So some of this, I think, was envisioned as a migration technique to say, you know, starting off uh, even unvalid, you know, invalid routes or those without jurisdiction or, the, or adjudication, I should say, um, will be accepted. And then over time, you, you get to the point where you only accept routes for which there is a valid signature and a, and a corresponding certificate. Um, so it's kind of okay in a sense that you could trust other people's routes, but that doesn't mean they trust you back. So again, that right. level that reciprocity is not given in this environment. Right. I right. can see they're causing all kinds of issues. Yeah. yeah. So, so RPKI is being deployed in some regions. APNIC and uh, LACNIC in particular are deploying RPKI. But what's going on right now is that people are realizing you can't rely just on the RPKI. The RPKI itself might be a good piece of information to input into the system right, that tells you whether or not a route is valid. Right, it's just one more data point. It's, it's one more data point. Yeah. You might weigh it more heavily depending on your local policy. So there's a whole um, group of people working on uh, Leslie Daigle at Thinking Cats and some other places, and um, Amir, who's a researcher, and a bunch of other people are working on alternate solutions where you take the RPKI as one data point into an entire system where you're using like IRRs and you're using open BMP data and you're using other things and you're weighting all these data streams and saying, yeah, there's no RPKI certificate here, but I trust it because, or, you know, something right. like that. I was waiting so, for him to say machine learning, but it never came. You really expect me to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be funny. Yeah, so, Clearly, that didn't work. <laughs> but it's okay, because that's actually what we have some researchers working in that area, actually looking at machine learning to figure out like what's a valid route and what's not. Well, now, I almost think that it's the you know the holder of the certificate too is going to matter on the validity of the certificate, right? We we exactly. know we know that someone you know some you know routes coming from just to pick you know the largest Google, right? Google's going to advertise their own routes. Anyone else advertising Google's routes? Just no yep. good, right? We, we know exactly right off the bat right. that's no good. Now, you know, you know, podunk little office in, you know, the middle of nowhere, we may or may not know. It's hard to give a, a you know, there's, there's going to be a range of trustworthiness of the certificate to, to IP address, or I'm sorry. And, no, and, yeah, and, other, and other information, right? right. And so, I, yeah, I can definitely see being a data point and used yeah. as a component of that. Right. I still, How long have they advertised this and does their upstream trust them and, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. There's all yeah. these other things you can feed into this type of thing. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So that, that, that work is underway. There are people, and this is a 15-year-old battle, so, you know, there are people working around this space actively. Um, in fact, there's a conference coming up in Germany in about two or three months. Um, just to talk about this. And there's some researchers in Japan working on it and some other people like that. 
Yeah, it's the interesting thing. The interesting thing I found about the origin validation is that despite all these trade-offs and the complexity of it is that there's actually some security holes in it. And the one that I think is most obvious is that when you only validate the origin AS, what about all the other ASs in between? <laughs> yes, the first hop. The first, right. Yeah. All you have to do, yeah, all you have to do is advertise. All you have to do is grab the route off off of some route server, off of some route view server, and and advertise it as if the person's behind you with a customized version of BGP, and yeah. you're done anyway. Yeah, right. you, you that put doesn't their sound AS ridiculously difficult. Ahead of yours in the AS path, and you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I if I look at your certificate and that information, which is generally public, and I know that this route is from AS sixty five thousand and one, just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna append that basically to the end of my AS path, put my own AS on yeah. it. Now, now it now it looks like he's behind me, and that's fine. Yeah. So that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's, so it's this kind of is easily defeated and really hard. Yes. And and this is and this is where BGP set comes in, which is which is frankly never going to deploy. Tell, us how, tell us how you really feel. Well, that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to deploy. Okay, so I mean, the idea here is that when you receive when you send a route, not when you receive it, when you send a route up to another to an, an EBGP speaker and an EBGP peer, you actually sign the AS path with a new attribute, including the speaker's AS that you're sending the, the update to. Okay, so validate so, source and destination. Okay. Right, and then this goes all the way through every hop, AS by AS. Man, this sounds really resource heavy. So these are X five these are X five nine certificates. So they're about two hundred fifty six k something like that for each attribute. So okay. just very small amounts of additional data <laughs> in the BGP data stream, and and now we get into the encryption problem and what Nick was talking about with um, with attack surfaces. So when we talk it's about thing. yeah, <laughs> yes, right, okay, and now so when you talk about you know about running TCP uh, um, IPsec, you're running that in the data plane, and there are chipsets designed to run it there. There are no chipsets designed to do encryption on a BGP update. So it's all going to be processed on a general purpose processor. Yeah, so you're running four, right. So you're running four public key hash runs over an X509 certificate with like a 256 bit key every time you receive a route for every route. And, and to make everybody a little more despondent, like who is going to pay? to do that in this industry, right? Like what business argument are you gonna to make to say that this is worth putting your resources here as opposed to some yes. other intent-based hotness? Which is, why, which is why I said it's never gonna deploy. So again, going back to the concept before of doing like machine learning, I have to say it for everyone, machine learning. <laughs> intent-based machine learning? Intent-based machine learning. Yeah, perfect. So. Yeah, part of that research is to think about that problem as well, is to think if we can figure out like ways of solving the first hop problem that Nick is talking about. Because the average AS path is only four hops. If I can solve two, and I'm, I'm the fourth hop, I know who my upstream is because I'm connected to them. Yeah, I mean, so there's some assumptions there, but I can, I can see how the problem right. isn't as big as it could be, yeah. Right, yeah. So, so if I can solve the first two, if I can solve the origin and the first hop, I can solve 80% of the problem. And that may be all I ever get to. I don't know. Maybe that's all I can ever do is 80% of the problem. Yeah, and then of course there's the, you know, even aside from the security and the, and the complexity of it and all that, there's 
you know, just the, the convergence time on BGP, because even though, you know, the time it would take to do the decryption and all that has to happen in the general purpose CPU, which requires a punt, and that's way slower than what would happen normally to process the route. And when you have millions of routes, potentially across multiple BGP feeds, uh, and you need to run BassPath on all of them, your convergence time could potentially take a hit. So I haven't done any real testing to back up that claim. Russ, do you, would you generally agree that if you know if you can yes. run best path on a set of routes in, let's say, two milliseconds, and now suddenly it takes twenty, that's going to add up, and now you're going to be in a, in a world of pain potentially, looking at ten times longer convergence for, for certain applications. Yeah, and and yes, and and to make it worse, you can't pack because now every update has a unique attribute, which is AS path to yeah. prefix. Right, so all of your BGP packing is gone. So you just mm -hmm. every yep. every every update becomes its own NLRI attribute set. Yep. Um, this impacts the way you hold stuff in memory because everything is its own set again. Um, so there's there's problems in the way you hold this in memory, and um, then there are other issues like you talked to Nick about you know the time it takes to do this. I mean, it's just huge amounts of time to do this. And it's a huge amount of data you're transferring and you kill packing. So I just, it seems like performance wise, this is never going to happen. Right. We, we never converge now. Like it's never, fully, oh, yes. yeah, we never that's fully right. converge that's now. So like, we're going to add all this overhead to this and like, we're going to make things more stable. Like that just seems oh, yes. unlikely. Oh, yeah. Yes. And, and there's this beautiful hole in BGP sec, by the way, I'll just, I'll set this up for you. Um, let's say you have full deployment of BGP sec. And, and by that, that's, this is, by the way, I talked to Alvaro the other day and Alvaro's like, the problem with BGP sec is not even all of this. It's that you can't deploy it until everybody deploys it. Because the signatures are useless until everybody deploys it. So what do you do? So, I mean, anyway, it, doesn't, it doesn't require a flag day, but you, you don't really get to use it until... Until everybody right. has, until yeah, gotcha, yeah. Right, so, so let's say everybody does deploy it. So let's say you have a totally deployed BGPSec network. So let's say Nick is peering with me, and Nick and I get in an argument. And Nick says, so he's sending me these updated routes, and he's sending me the, the routes with the signature. So they're signed routes with my AS path and the AS path and everything else. So totally valid routes in the BGPSec system. Nick and I get in an argument. And Nick says, I'm done with you. You're not my upstream anymore. I'm just done with you. I'm going to connect to somebody else. So Nick connects to somebody else. Wonderful. Now, if I have a copy of Nick's signed route with my AS number in it, how long can I continue advertising that and consuming Nick's traffic, even though he's no longer connected to me? You certainly could cause some pain. Yeah. <laughs> that would be until Nick rolls his key. Yeah, yeah. Until the, until the key changes. Wow. So when you say roll my key, you're talking about the, the private key I use to sign to to sign the certificate that's on my route. That's, is that what you mean? Yes. Is that is that is key right. rotation built into this into the system or is that like I mean like so oh, yeah, of course. Right. Of course, so of course. You said a standard lifetime and yeah, key you every, roll every 24 hours. Yeah, but yeah. now let's say you do roll it every 24 hours. Now all of your private key signatures on all of your routes in your entire routing table, 750,000, 1.2 million, whatever it is, change every 24 hours. And so, so they have to be re-signed yeah. and re-sent out. So yes. we're also increasing our BGP updates just because of re-keys. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, BGP updates because of keys and and the fact that it's essentially a reconvergence event every time that happens because yes. the old routes are no longer valid. Right. That's exactly right. right. 
It's like, yeah, this, it's like you always feel. So why are we talking about this again? I, I'm, I'm about ready to go stick my head back in the sand. <laughs> Spanning tree is much simpler, isn't it? No, <laughs> no, I disagree. No, spanning tree when deployed correctly is much simpler. It's it's more constrained though. It's not the whole internet. That's true. Yeah. It's hard to solve. And I think a lot of it, you know, we started off by talking about the real basic stuff. Like if we do the BCP stuff for, for yeah. preventing spoof yeah. traffic and we do the ingress filtering, like the way I said with only allow, you know, if you're connected to an end customer at the very edge of the tier three, four service provider level, do the right filtering, only allow the routes that you're allowed to allow in or, or that you expect to allow in what the right AS is. You know, if we could magically harden the edge of the internet and all these ISPs and the routes that come in, you'd probably see a substantially less of these problems. Um, but instead, you That's know, right. kind of a pipe dream to do that. So people are looking at more complex solutions that are more integrated security through the whole system. And while I think a lot of security professionals would agree uh, the old, you know, I don't know, proverb, whatever you call it, you know, crunchy on the outside, crunchy on the inside, that's generally preferred. But in something like the internet, it just generally just doesn't work for all the reasons we described. So I tend to be a believer <laughs> that if you do the basic things around the periphery, you end up with a pretty secure internet. Yeah. And crunchy on the outside and gooey on the inside is usually yummy. Yeah. That's my <laughs> Not, not, to, uh, not to a security if, compliance guy. But. I was going to say, if you're an attacker, that's usually very yummy. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Nick that's brought it's... a little hope back to the despair that we were experiencing. <laughs> it's always the basics. It, honestly, and just about every time, it's always the basics. And, you know, there's always complex yeah. solutions to problems that could be easily solved. But again, we run into it, like Russ said, not having the know-how, being a small company, um, you know, yeah. When you're a small ISP, especially in like a rural part of the country, you know, at least in the United States, we talk about efforts from the government to expand things like broadband into the rural environments and things like that. These aren't going to be big dog companies that are going and setting up, you know, broadband in, in towns of population of 500. Um, so you're going to end up with what you get. Hey, that's me. There. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can, it be some can it be some wisp running microtech? Oh, sorry. <laughs> no need to apologize. <laughs> Yvonne's ready to set that up right now because she's got no, no other better options. That's exactly right. All right, guys, it's been a great conversation. I think we're going to have to uh, stop it here. Um, Russ, why don't you tell folks where they can find you online? Well, you can always find me at rule11.tech. And now I've started doing network shorts at Network Collective, and I seem to be on Network Collective a lot. Short Just, takes. Yay! Short we're takes. glad Short you're takes. here. <laughs> and what about you, Nick? Are you you can find me on Twitter at Nick Russo 42518 uh, and also at LinkedIn. Uh, my handle is NJRUSMC. All right. And Jordan, where can people find you? Sure. Uh, I too am at Network Collective a lot. Um, but beyond that, I'm also on Twitter at BC Jordo. You can find me on LinkedIn, pretty much all the social media places and occasionally on my blog, jordanmartin.net. Yep. Um, and I'm Yvonne Sharp. You can find me writing in and around the internet and um, on the blog at esharp.net. And you can always find me on Twitter at Sharp Network complaining about SFPs and XFPs and all kinds of enterprise funness. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you for the next Network Collective. 